0: We've got a couple of announcements to go over. For those of you who want to register for uh, Chafer Seminary's fall term, uh, registration closes this Friday on the 18th. Also, then on Saturday morning, we're going to not have, that's a not, not have a men's prayer breakfast this month. Uh, We need to have a prep school meeting at 9, so we're just moving things around. Deacon's meeting at 8 a.m., and then prep school meeting at nine, and then also coming up at the end of September, plan on uh, getting involved to some degree with the Fort Bend County Fair, uh, working the booth out there. It's just a great opportunity to to develop a skill at evangelism and at giving the gospel. Now, some of you may feel a little a little shaky or uncertain. Just go out there and watch. See how the, these guys do it. Uh, there are a, probably a hundred or two hundred different ways you can approach giving the gospel, and so every time you s- sort of watch somebody, I used to just love to sit and watch Gene Brown give the gospel. I mean, and it was it was it was always the same content, but he always went at it from a different, depending on who the individual was. So that's always uh, just uh, the more you expose yourself to listening and watching other people give the gospel, the more you learn about how to do it. So it's a great, great opportunity to see how that is done. And then on October 7th, I hope we have a good turnout. Raleigh Morris is going to be here with his uh, pastor friend, Aaron Marshall. And these guys both are missionaries, as it were, Aaron's a pastor, but the, the he's in Utah, surrounded by Mormons. Uh so he's got great experience there and I just enjoy listening to them, but they're focusing on how to use and when to use apologetics within the framework of of evangelism. And so that's gonna be all day. That's gonna start about eight thirty in the morning and go till about four thirty or five in the afternoon. And um And then we're going to have our annual church picnic on October the 21st. So make sure you have all those things uh, laid out for you. I think that's it for announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I have too many things. God did not intend our ears to hold more than one thing, and I have too many. And that's just not not fitting correctly. So, anyway, I lost my whole train of thought there on those verses. Nevertheless, God knows, and you know. So we will begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we're just thankful that we have grace, that your grace is sufficient for everything in our lives. You give us the uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit. You give us the uh, wor- your word uh, to hide in our heart and that your grace is always sufficient no matter what we're facing. And so we just rejoice in that. And, Father, we uh, pr- continue to pray for... Um, Raleigh Morris and his family there in Israel, pray that uh, as he comes here in September, October, I know he'll be talking to various churches, and Father, we just pray that you would uh, put a desire on uh, people's minds to support them and that ministry there, and uh, Father, we're thankful that they've had some uh, fi- financial gifts come in that can give them a little little breathing room, for, but they need, still need to see their monthly giving increase. So, Father, we pray for that. We pray for us as we continue our study that we may gain a greater understanding of your grace and your goodness and salvation and the problems we face as we look at the world around us and especially in training the child, our children and grandchildren and the children that you've given us to take care of in this congregation. So, uh, Father, we pray that as we study these things that they will uh, refresh us and uh, give us great tools to be able to uh, express and teach your word to our kids. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, let's stand up and go through the uh, events that we have. Uh, in the um, order of the scriptures, the 11 Old Testament events and 8 New Testament events. And so I'm going to p- turn that off. You've said it enough. You ought to have it by now. See? Oh, caught you, didn't I? Yeah, looks like pop quiz night. All right, ready? Creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel, call of Abraham... Then you have the Exodus, and then God gives the law, the Ten, is for the Ten Commandments. And then they uh, go to the promised land, and you have the conquest. And then after the conquest, they set up the kingdom, and then there's going to be a division. You'll have the northern kingdom, southern kingdom, and then they are going to be, uh, God is going to exile them, take them out of the land. There will be a partial return Now, that summarizes the Old Testament. The New Testament begins with the fulfillment of the promise, with the birth of the Messiah, and then he will go to the cross and die for our sins. He will be buried, and then on the third day he rises from the dead, and then he will ascend to heaven. Then he sends the Holy Spirit to begin the church, and we live in the church age. And uh, at the church age ends, when he comes in the clouds at the rapture, and we go to be with the Lord forever. That's followed by the seven years of tribulation, and then Christ returns to the earth and establishes his kingdom. That kingdom is for a thousand years, and then there will be the great white throne judgment. Okay, very good. We got it all done. You can follow the leader. That's good. I'll pick somebody next week to lead it. So, you know, if I say that now, nobody will show up next week. <laughs> All right. So, we are on lesson three, part two of our interlocked. And the issue in lesson three is the consequences of the fall. The consequences of the fall. And last week we looked at what happened to the human beings as a result of the fall. And this week, we're looking at what happened to the uh, divine institutions. So we've gone through the timeline, and we are at still talking about the fall and the consequences of the fall. Uh, the key things to remember at the very beginning, the creator-creature distinction, and then you have the divine institutions, and then the fall into sin. So that sets the stage For where we are right, right now. So the focus of lesson one was God's creation and His creation of the human race and His creation of the divine institutions and He created the human race to be able to function successfully Within the framework of these divine institutions, so he didn't just sort of throw something together and say, Oh, I think I'm going to make a man and a woman, and then, then we'll put some regulations on them. He, the, he had all of this in mind as he created man so that he would, these divine institutions would give structure to uh, the human races. Uh, socialization, you might say, marriage and family. So lesson two focused on the wrong views of creation, how uh, Satan introduces the basic concepts of paganism, which included the denial of the creature creator-creature distinction and the introduction of this idea of the chain of being, that all reality is just part of itself and that we can be like God and move up and down that chain of of being, and that's at the core of all human error. Then we get to the third lesson, and that's what happens to the world, what happens to mankind, what happens to the divine institutions as a result of the fall. So things we should remember, first of all, the creator-creature distinction. Second, that God is the infinite personal creator God, and He is omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent. And, and there's no God like Yahweh. There is no other. And so we have to remember that and maintain that distinction. And the creature cannot understand the Creator fully. His ways are not—our ways are not His ways, and His thoughts are not our thoughts. So we have to maintain that distinction. Third, that God created everything out of nothing— So you don't have the eternality of matter or the eternality of chaos or the eternality of these pagan gods and goddesses. Fourth, God created the first humans, Adam and Eve, in his image to rule over the planet as his representatives. And so even though we saw that when he created the spirit beings, the angels, they have bodies, they have um, mentality, Uh, They have conscience. They know right from wrong. And um, they have a self-consciousness and a God-consciousness. But what distinguishes those elements are the fact that God created man to be able to rule over his creation, and that's what distinguishes him as God's image. He is to be a reflection Of God, but because of sin, he can't be much of a reflection of God until you get to the New Testament and he's saved. And we are being conformed to what in the New Testament? We're being conformed to the image of Christ. So that's part of what sanctification is as we grow and mature is to recover uh, the image of God. It's not lost, but it's corrupted by uh, because of sin, or we're defaced because of sin. So there has to be that that restoration comes through sanctification. So God, fifth, God created as part of man's physical net, nature specific social attributes that are called, what? Divine institutions. And they are divine. The God is set these it, and built us so that we function best and most successfully that way. I'm calling them, number one, responsible choice, second is marriage, and third is family. Now, we'll be dealing with how sin affects these divine institutions as we go forward uh, this evening. Now, the sixth thing is that there are certain things that build a worldview. A worldview is like a set of glasses. You've all heard the idiom about people who look at life through rose-colored glasses. Well, some people look at life through pagan colored glasses. Some people look at life through Marxist colored glasses. Some people look at life through critical race theory or critical theory colored glasses. Other people look at at life and they just have a kind of a mosaic because they've just combined things from lots of different worldviews just to make it kind of work for them. But we want to look through, at life through a set of glasses that are shaped by the Word of God. So in a biblical worldview, we've learned three things so far, that we have the creator creature God, he is the personal sovereign God, and he is the ultimate authority. In contrast, pagan worldview sees a continuity of being, there's always something that's existed, there's no creator God, and so there's this scale of being or continuity of being idea second everything is ruled by impersonal fate and chance there's no real personal uh, god that is guiding history so therefore everything is random and third the ultimate authority in all of this is the individual self and so we've looked looking at this third um third lesson seeing the differences and so we've seen so far what happened to the perfect world after the fall Sin damage to man, um, and we looked at death of the friendship with God, the death of the body, uh, second death, eternal separation of the immaterial part of man from the material part, and so now we're looking at how sin damages uh, man and how sin damages the, um, the divine institutions. So what happened to the perfect world after the fall? That's what we were looking at last time. It's impact on man. He is spiritually dead. It has broken his relationship with God, his friendship with God. It impacts nature. That is God's creation changes. We'll see a little bit more of that this evening. And then it's impact on the divine institutions. Now we have this chart which explains the significance of evil. As I pointed out last time, People always struggle with evil, and you'll have this. You'll have kids in your class, and they'll go through things. Maybe they have a parent or grandparent die. Maybe they will have um, some other situation occur at home or maybe at school, and they're asking the question, why did this happen? And so it's important to be able to guide them into thinking, why is there evil in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? And so we understand this from a biblical viewpoint that everything was perfect and good before the fall. But because of the fall, everything fell apart. That's the problem is sin. The problem is not that the the existence of the human race in the sense that, well, they're messing up the planet, so we just need to... Uh, reduce the population to limit the damage because we have to make sure that for some reason the planet survives. And so we're here to serve the planet rather than the planet to serve us. So that's part of the problem with at the root of a lot of environmentalism. And there's a difference between the environmentalist theory as in terms of modern environmentalism versus the biblical view of responsible... Uh, dominion responsible uh, care uh, of the planet, and even though there may be some things that are similar it 's not the similarities that are important it 's the differences and the motivation and the uh, the understanding. so we understand that God is in control, and the Lord Jesus Christ sustains the the universe day in and day out, He holds it together, and if he were to relax it for one second, it would just disappear. So he maintains the existence of everything. So the existence of evil is abnormal. It's introduced into human history because of sin. But there eventually will be a judgment of sin, and then God will send those who have rebelled against him, angels, because the lake of fire was originally created for the fallen angels. He will send them to the lake of fire, and then that will be restricted off. So there's a beginning and an end to evil. Uh, no other system has an answer to the problem of evil. And so this, this means we can trust God. We may not understand it all. We may not understand why God allows so much to take place right now, but we will at some point, we just have to trust, trust God that because he's omniscient, he knows more about it than we do. And uh, and so he's going to take care of that. So we saw that sin damaged man's immaterial nature, that before there was sin, man was composed of three parts, his bo- physical body, his human soul, and a spirit, a human spirit, that which enabled his soul to have a relationship with God and to understand the things of the Spirit of God. But after sin, all he has is a body and a soul, and so there's no relationship. He's, he's alive, but he's spiritually dead. He's physically alive and spiritually, spiritually dead. So the result of that is that every human being is abnormal. They're, they've got intellectual problems. They can't solve every issue in life. They can't understand everything in life because they're divorced from the Creator. They are spiritually abnormal because they're separated from God, who is once their uh, once their friend, the one with whom they had fellowship, the one they had could communicate with. Now they're separated from God. They are emotionally abnormal, and they are physically abnormal. And the problem is sin. And Christians too often just do not have a very robust concept of sin. And so we're, we we don't know quite what to do with it. It's funny because we had a question that came in to uh, uh, Dean Bible Ministries uh, where somebody said, what if I can't think of any sins that I've committed? And my response was, well, just confess arrogance because that's probably what's going on. And um, start with self-sufficiency, or I just haven't trusted God, because Scripture says that anything apart from faith is sin. So that pretty much covers that. But once we, the, I think the more mature we become, and the more we read Scripture, the more sinful we realize we are. And so it's not difficult to come up with uh, with five or six or ten thousand sins that we just committed in the last hour. Because we are rebellious creatures and the heart is still deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? Only God. So that's the problem. And if we start with something else as the problem, then the solutions are false. And that's what we see in our culture is they they have removed sin from the culture. And that part of that is the result of the influence of uh Sigmund Freud and he, he hated Christianity and he hated the concept of sin and he did everything he could to give uh human beings a, a rationale and justification for doing what they did and that it wasn't sinful, that everything is okay because that's just the way we are. Scripture says in Romans three, ten through twelve. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. Not one of us is born righteous. Second, there is none who understands. Being divorced from God in spiritual death, we don't understand God, and we don't seek God. We may want to know something about that there must be something out there, But we really, as a spiritually dead person, are divorced from any concept of what that might be. It's only the grace of God through common grace that God the Holy Spirit enables us to desire to know whatever there might be. And Romans 3.12, and this is all quoted from different psalms, they have all turned aside, they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. None of us is inherently capable of doing that which... Is, is righteous so the choice in the garden of Eden was to live de, li, what we were supposed to do was to live dependently on the creator God but what Eve did and then Adam did was to act independently of God to decide what was right and what was wrong on their own so that was their choice sinless man had a conscience that was grounded in what God had revealed. For us, after salvation, our conscience should be formed by what's in the Word of God. Fall a man's conscience just says what? It's the woman you gave me. It's always blaming others, and and I never do anything wrong because I'm really basically good. Don't you just love it when you hear about some some? Person who just uh, killed a family, or, or ran over two or three kids in the street, and the reporters go and they interview people that knew them and say, "I just can't believe little Johnny do that. He's such a good person." And they, they you say that it goes on and on and on. You'll hear that on the news. They interview their friends. Say, "Well, he's really good." No, he's not. Neither are you. Neither am I. We're all sinners and And when we start with a flawed concept of who we are as as fallen spiritually dead people, then the solutions are all going to be the wrong solutions at the end of Romans one, beginning of Romans two Paul says, regarding the Gentiles who have a, a, a in their conscience an understanding of of, of the right and wrong, uh, says who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, they commit the same sins, the same actions, but also approve of those who practice them. Therefore, you are inexcusable. You are without excuse. Every human being is without excuse because, back to Romans 1, we'll look at those verses later, that they know that God exists because God had made it evident to them and made it manifest within them. So there's nobody that can say, well, I just didn't know you existed because God makes it abundantly clear so that none are without excuse. And so he says, whatever you judge someone else, you condemn yourself because every one of us will turn around. How many times you say this? I don't want anybody volunteering. But how many times do we say something we catch ourselves saying that we sort of made some negative comment about somebody and then maybe a month or two later all of a sudden we realize we're doing the same thing. We all do that. And that's Paul's point here. So as we get into this second half, we have to think about how sin damaged people and how people try to fix it apart from God. How has this sin problem damaged every human being and what are the ways that human beings try to do, uh, to help it, to try to fix it? So some people believe that they can make themselves whole again. And so they seek all kinds of different things. And you see, this is, this is what's almost inherent in advertising. And you you look at a lot of the products that are advertised and they are going to make you beautiful and they're going to make you healthy and they're going to give you a long and wonderful life and they're going to give you a fantastic love life. And all kinds of things are promised from all kinds of products. They're going to make you, the clothes are going to make you look handsome or sexy or whatever. And the food is going to not only be pleasurable, but it's going to make you healthy and all kinds of other things to try to make us whole again because we've been emotionally, physically, intellectually, and spiritually damaged by sin but they try to deal with this on the basis of ignoring god i remember when i was in my first or second first year or so as a pastor there was a couple in my church whose son had gone through seminary with me and he was a he was a solid guy and uh, they had uh, they were just a very hard working I was down down in Lamarck down near all the all the uh, refineries and plants chemical plants down there, and they were just hard working people, but they had gotten involved I think their other son got them involved in selling a vitamin product, and they had been quite successful. They had a car nice new car because of the, what they had sold and so they sort of enticed me into you know why don't you give it a try and maybe you can make a little extra money and uh, which always appeals to young pastors at a small church and so um i did that but i went to one of the one of the sales meetings and as i sat there listening to it i said if you just substituted jesus christ for the name of their product you would have an evangelistic message because what you're promising through your product is everything that a person gets in salvation. And, you know, that was just a, a real eye-opener for me, and that was the last time I was enticed into, into being a salesperson. So we have to understand um, that the pro- there's not anything necessarily wrong with the details of life, because that's what we're talking about here is just the various details of life other than they're not going to give us what only God can give us. And so we have uh, the things, shopping is the first one. But that's just related to the fact that we think that money and the things that money can buy will somehow give us a... Uh, a, a richer life and that there won't be this hollowness at the center of our life. I'm talking about a spiritually dead person. And so people look to the things that they have as that which gives meaning and value and significance to their life. And sooner or later, that's going to fall apart. Or they look to education and achievement and being able to uh, do well in their career. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things unless you think that that's going to solve the ultimate problem that you really have in life. Uh, then you have all of these various, uh, supplements and pills, whether they're the legal vitamin types of supplements or whether they're the illegal types of supplements uh, when, when you get into drugs and alcohol, lots of other things, because people just want to deaden the pain, uh, that is in their, in their life. And so they think that if they just have the, um, right tool, if they just have the right kind of, uh, of uh, clothes, if they have the right car, if they have the right kind of phone, the right status symbols, if they have the right kind of doctor who gives them the right kind of medication, if they get the right kind of a life coach, then then they're going to be able to overcome this, this thing in their life that where they recognize they don't really have any meaning or, or value or purpose. And what Scripture teaches us is that the problem is spiritual death, and the destiny of man isn't just that he lacks meaning or purpose or value, but that he is destined for eternity in the lake of fire, for eternal punishment. And so we have to come to understand what that problem is. It's inherent sin. It is spiritual death. And so we have to communicate that to our kids. We have to figure out ways to communicate that to young kids from an early age, and just that you're going to get lots of illustrations of disobedience that you can use with them because they're going to be dis- disobedient to you, and to talk to them about why they are disobedient and help them to understand things uh, like like sin and that it's their responsibility. And of course, we use the uh, the the tool I think that's very good. The yes button and the no button and using that because that communicates at a very early age and as the kids grow then you can teach them additional concepts uh, related to that but we have to acknowledge that sin is the problem and what happens is that that is the last thing that satan wants to do wants us to realize he wants to distract us he uses all the glitz and the glamour and the products and the Uh, material possessions and also the things that stimulate our emotions and everything as a way of distracting us into thinking that somehow we can make life work apart from God. And that it doesn't need a whole lot of, of encouragement from our sin nature because our sin nature gravitates to that temptation that we can make life work apart from us. And so I think it's important to recognize that with your little kids, it's an abstract concept but that we do things to honor God we do things to glorify God we live our life because God has a plan and purpose for our lives and and they may not understand that when they're 2 or when they're 3 or when they're 5 or 7 but but you 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 say it over and over again and often enough that that when they get to a point where they're beginning to grasp that it's going to have significant weight and because you started teaching them that and saying that when they were younger then their brains have been formatted for that for that concept and i think way too many parents start way too late to try to you know i've heard parents say well i'm not going to start teaching them this or that until they're old enough to understand it well then they're you're going to be a failure as a parent because they have to start understanding Disobedience and the consequences of disobedience from the time they come out of the womb, and it, it's not. And I'm not saying it has to be harsh, but they have to have. A, you know, you, you can give a, a you know six month old baby just a little pat on the padded diapers, and just because he senses that he's done something that made you unhappy, he's going to scream bloody murder and cries if you, you know, just beat him over the head with a baseball bat. But it te- they, they begin to learn that there are some things that are a little unpleasant that come as a result of making decisions that, that are not right. So the problem is inherent sin, and ultimately the only solution is the divine solution, which begins at the cross. And when we're saved, we talk about the fact that we are redeemed. We have been purchased from the slave market of sin. But, but the... Scripture also uses that, we saw this on on, um, Sunday morning in the passage in Ephesians 4.30, that we are uh, not to grieve the Holy Spirit because we have been uh, sealed by the Spirit until the day of what? Redemption. There's a use of the word redemption that talks about what happened at the cross where Christ paid the penalty for our sin. Redemption when we realize it, when we trust Christ as Savior. And also anticipating that phase three glorification when we realize that redemption. And that redemption is also applied to what happens when God solves the problem of the corruption on the earth. So that we have to keep focus and with kids. You know why are we here? We're here to serve God. We're here to glorify God. We're here to obey the Lord. God has a meaning and purpose for your life. It's valuable because of what you're going to do for the Lord. For your, it's going to count for eternity. Uh, your life right now, the decisions that we make are going to have e- eternal, uh, eternal consequences. But we have another problem, and that's that Satan seeks to distract us from the real problem and the only solution and he tries to minimize sin and you see this a lot with christians who get caught up with uh, the world's solutions and satan's solutions and kids try to find something to give some meaning and purpose to their lives apart from the scriptures and the result of that is usually just more more problems and when we try to solve our problems our way instead of God's way, it makes things worse. That's what Adam and Eve did. They tried to solve their problem apart from God and um, decide whether or not they should eat the fruit and look at the horrible consequences. So we have to make sure that, that we do things God's way. And if we follow Satan's solution, then... Uh, we discover eventually that it is superficial, it's useless, it makes matters, makes matters worse. But a lot of Christians buy into Satan's solutions. And the result of that is that, um, they just sort of baptize, uh, these, hu- these, uh, satanic solutions and slap christian names on them that's what christian psychology did basically borrowed all all the methodologies and all the analysis and everything from from the uh, pagan systems and just you know changed the names to biblical names to make it sound like it was christian rather than starting from the scripture scripture sufficient you don't need to go read secular psychologists but that's, that's a real problem, so we need to under understand those issues. So it just brings us back to the fact that while there's nothing wrong with the money or the things that money can buy, having things, shopping, enjoying that, getting a good education, uh, having a career and being successful, uh, being healthy, all of these other things, and um, stay away from the self-help books. That's usually the biggest section in... A bookstore if you still go to a bookstore but i remember back when i'd go to a christian bookstore which i haven't seen in 20 years that it had gotten to the point between uh, there used to be a wonderful bookstore here some of you remember mills bible bookstore that was down in garden oaks and if you remember that that's where i mean you go in there and you had good theology books and bible studies and commentaries and it was filled with good stuff and then they, the family uh, closed it, I think, in the 90s. And then you'd go to a Baptist bookstore or you'd go to some other Bible bookstore, and 90% of the books in there were Christian self-help books. And I remember one particular author and one particular book that was designed to help men be men, and it was written by a a... Christian guy who'd been a pastor his baptized solutions and the way you'd really find out the christian books that that weren't really biblical was you'd go to a new age bookstore. And there used to be a new age bookstore in um in, in a shopping center about 2 or 3 miles where Tommy Ice lived in in South Austin back in the back in the 80s called the Bodhi Tree. Anybody know what a Bodhi Tree is? We oh, are so sheltered. Gautama Buddha sat under a bodhi tree and meditated. Okay, so that's it was called the bodhi tree and it was all this new age mystic, mysticism and everything in there and Tommy and I would go through there and pick out all the all the book, Christian books by by so-called evangelicals that we knew that were being sold at the new age bookstore. And that tells you a whole lot about what New Age people thought of what they were saying. It was just the same thing, baptized by Christians. But Christians weren't smart enough to see that. That's why they call, God calls us sheep. It's not a compliment. So always remember that. So anyway, we get distracted by Satan's solutions just as Eve got distracted by by Satan's, uh, Satan's solution. So we always have to be careful with that. In the pagan worldview, good and evil coexist. So that means that there's not ultimately any real difference. Evil is necessary. Good is necessary. There's nothing that's normal. Evil is normal. But what we learn in the biblical worldview is sin damaged nature. Now, I think this is really important to help kids learn, and you can do a lot with your young kids, as they get a little bit older in school and you, you they start uh, learning some things in school related to pagan environmentalism. And one of the things you can do is you can, uh, especially if something, if there's a volcanic eruption somewhere on the planet is to uh, help them see how to research what, what is that Volcano putting up into the atmosphere. What are the chemicals that are coming out of that volcano, and how much is coming out? Let's say in a 24-hour period, uh, compared to the production of those kinds of harmful things or so-called harmful things, uh, based on um, uh, you know just just based on man man's industrial production. And so you have things that, that come up where you get a certain huge amount of carbon dioxide that's being thrown into the atmosphere. And so the environmentalists scream and say that's going to destroy the planet. No, it's just going to make it greener. You know, it feeds all of the, all the plants. Why is carbon dioxide so bad? How many people here could tell me off the top of their head, uh, what, what, what percentage of the Earth's atmosphere is carbon dioxide? You know the answer. It's like 0.04, right? 0.04 to 0.06. That's the range it should be. But most people, you ask them that question, they're going to say 12%, 15%, something outrageous. And if it's less than four percent, we're going to die. And if it's more than point, I mean 0.04 percent, if it's more than 0.06 percent, uh, we're going to die too. So how come it stays stays in that range? Well, we're going to find out a few things in, in, as we go forward. So what happens in the curse in Genesis three seventeen to 19 is that God, after talking to the serpent and outlining the curse to the serpent and then to Eve, he says to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground, the earth. For your sake. Wait a minute. Did you catch that last prepositional phrase? God cursed the earth for our sake. Think about that. Weeds and thistles and thorns. Because if it had stayed the way it was, then life would be too easy and we'd think we didn't have a problem. So God brings judgment there because that toil, that hardship now, Uh, is designed to teach us some things. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it. See, there was responsible labor prior to this. There were tasks that needed to be done, but there was no resistance. There was no problem. It was 100% joyful. There's no sweat of the brow. There's no difficulty. There's no weeds. There's no thistles and thorns. But now... God's creation is, is fighting back, and so it's much more difficult. And that's why, in a fallen world, we can't fulfill the, the creation mandate to uh, uh, rule over the uh, rule over the planet. And Genesis three eighteen, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the fruit the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That's the first mention of physical death. It's not the death that occurred when they ate from the fruit. It's it's the result of that. They didn't die when they ate. But what's important is to go to the New Testament, because we have a passage that is not one of Greta Thornburg's favorite, but it should be because she'd understand that as much as she blames the human race for all of the evils of environmental problems, she's not even scratching the surface on the the extreme damage that the human race has actually done to the planet. Uh, you know that's all. Su- what she talks about is all superficial. She says, uh, I mean, Romans eight says, "For uh, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us." Think about that. That no matter how hard it is, no matter what suffering you've gone through, it's nothing compared to the glory we have wait, waiting for us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits. The creation, the impersonal creation of God, is groaning right now. It goes on to say in uh, uh, when we get down to verse twenty-two. And so the creation is personified here that, it's, that it, des, hung, it desires, it looks forward to um, God uh, and, the, and the, the sons of God, meaning, meaning uh, church age of believers being revealed, for the creation was subject to futility, to emptiness, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So God subjects the creation in hope. He does that. He, he, you know, he, he says that God curses it for, for Adam's sake back in Genesis three. And here we're told that God subjected it to this uh, corruption in hope. There's going to be a future redemption. It's all tied together. And this is what needs to be investigated to build a, a robust biblical view of the environmental problem. And um, verse 21 says, Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Don't you love those thorns? That tree is in a place called Beit Shan in Israel. And I just love going there. Some of you have been there with me when, when I've gone there. That, that's just, I mean, that's, I've really blown that up. But these thorns are like an inch to an inch and a half long, and they just completely cover every limb, the trunk, everything. If you were to slap your hand on the trunk, you would be pierced by, by 12 or 18 thorns. It is the most wicked tree that I have, I have ever seen. You know, another example they give in the notes is, is uh, Krakatoa. And uh, Krakatoa is another natural evil. Uh, we call them natural disasters, but it's a natural evil. In 1883, the explosion of the volcanic island of Krakatoa, which is located down here in Indonesia, that when it exploded, it killed more than 36,000 people. That's bigger than a lot of Texas towns. It was so loud that it was heard 3,000 miles away. And see that circle? It's 3,000 miles from the epicenter. That means that they heard it in Japan. They heard it in northern China. They heard it in, uh, down to southeastern uh, Australia. And they heard it as far as India. And, and the clouds, the ash... Uh, darkened the sky as far away as England. And it created so much uh, volcanic dust in the upper atmosphere that it reflected the heat of the sun away from the planet, and the next couple of winters were very cold uh, be- because of that that impact. So, uh, like I said, have, ki- have your kids research uh, volcanoes and the damage that they do. So that deals with the damage to God's creation. And what happened to the perfect institutions that God created? Remember, the first divine institution is responsible choice. Now, I like that because it's a good umbrella term, but it covers some other things. Man was responsible for uh, work, for production, for labor, for for tending the garden, for keeping it, protecting it, all of these things, and to rule over the planet. But once you have sin, then it damages creation. It damages, changes the animals. We know that all of the animals that God created were herbivores. That means they were designed to just eat a vegetation. But what happens? It's not long before they change and they're eating, um, they're eating meat. They're killing one another. That happens between the period of the fall and the flood, and that's where you have the development of, I believe, a lot of these uh, more vicious dinosaurs like T-Rex and other things. Now, they didn't die out at the flood because Noah took uh, from whatever the kinds were. A kind is not equivalent to a species. It's a little bit higher than that, maybe on the level of family, but he took those on the ark with him. Now, you have to remember, so I had a song leader when I was in, um, in, in, in pastoring a church in Irving, Texas, who was getting his master's degree in paleontology at SMU, and he had to keep his identity or his belief in creationism secret, but he said what's fascinating is reptiles never stop growing. So when you have human beings living 900 years before the flood, and you have dinosaurs that are reptiles, and they don't stop growing for 900 years, they're going to get fairly large. And so they would be killed in the flood, and that's going to produce uh, these, uh, these huge um, cemeteries of dinosaurs that are found in, in various various locations. But the ones that were taken on the ark uh were young they were smaller there's plenty of room for them they're not eating voraciously like they would if they were much larger and then once they get off the ark the 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 climate changes rapidly it just it's just in a horrible state of flux for the next 1000 to 2000 years and then then um uh they didn't survive but you there's a there are a couple of books out that I, Institute for Creation Research publishes i think uh you can also get some from um uh, answers in Genesis, where people have gone back and they've traced l- the the uh, dragon legends uh, back to, um, you know, in England and Scandinavia and Western Europe. And if you go back and, for example, uh, you read Beowulf, and you try to sketch out what the monster looks like in Beowulf, it's amazingly similar to a T-Rex little short forearms that have no strength in them, and uh, teeth that are huge, other things. so and a tail that's like the trunk of a tree. So this is really fascinating. and, and you go and when early Western Europeans went into uh, the Amazon forest, there were, there were stories of, um, of dragons and dinosaur type creatures. That were within the living memory of the tribe. Okay, so, so it's, this kind of stuff is, is ignored. And somewhere I've got some slides from, um, that, that John Morris gave me <clears throat> of things that were discovered in the coal mines in Western, v- West Virginia. And that, that if they were digging in the coal mines, cause his father, Henry Morris, had, had taught at the Virginia Polytechnic Institute, taught engineering and hydraulics uh, back in the back in the early 50s. You know, Henry Morris taught at Rice. Henry Morris, who founded ICR, taught at Rice. Went to this little church down at the Quonset Hut downtown. Some of you know where that was. And um, and then about 1953 or 54, he got a went out to uh, Western Virginia. But when he went out there, uh, that he, that he had coal miners in his church, and they would tell him that that if we are cutting into a new vein of coal and we discover a skull or we discover, uh, uh, we ha- and, and I've got a picture, it's a bell with a Baal figure on top of it. I mean, it's a well-crafted and designed uh, brass bell that's about this high, and, and uh, that was found embedded in a vein of coal. How did that happen? That just magically appeared. It took millions of years to form that coal. And there weren't any humans alive at that time. That's the story. So every time they'd discover something like that, they'd have to call in the Smithsonian Institute. They'd they'd close off that particular tunnel, and they would go in and remove anything and everything that that didn't fit the evolutionary theory, and they'd take it back like the Ark of the Covenant in Indiana Jones and the Ark of the Covenant, and they would... uh, would we'll put it in a box and put it hide it in a warehouse somewhere. So don't trust your government, especially when they tell you to go get a vaccine. That's just my opinion. You, my mother always told me don't don't trust the government. They're not in it for your health. Okay, so what we see sinful man now abuses the good things. Food is good. Drink is good. Uh, work labor is is good. Um, taking care of your health is a, uh, is a good thing. All of these things are good, but we idolize them. We begin to worship them. And so we, some people are real foodies and they uh, have no discipline when it comes to what they eat. And then there's others who go in the opposite direction and they try to avoid food and they have certain eating disorders, they say. All of these are just the results of, of, of sinful approaches to, to man, uh to the creation. Uh in labor you either overwork and you're a workaholic and you ignore your family, your spouse, and everything else. Or you just go to the other extreme and you're lazy and you're irresponsible. Book of Proverbs focuses on that a lot. Or you just get so obsessed with your physique that you're at the gym for four hours every day and you probably are not paying attention to other responsibilities. On the other hand, you just don't take care of your health. And consequently, when you get to be about 75 to 80 all of those bad decisions that you never dealt with are going to come back and haunt you with a series of diffi- uh, physical difficulties. And so you come down to uh, where you're looking at the um, main purpose in life is pleasure, or the uh, or it's just uh, one of those other things become, becomes your main purpose, and you don't know how to Uh, properly uh, enjoy what God has provided. And what we learn is the Bible talks about why people sin. And uh, we saw with, um, with, uh, oh, we'll get there in a minute. Where's that? Where's the verse? Did I lose it? No. Uh, It's coming up. What did Adam do? God showed up. They ran and hid. They had already tried to cover themselves up by uh, sowing fig leaves together. And uh, the man says, Well, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree. Notice, she, it's, the woman you gave me she gave me of the tree and i ate and then the lord asked the woman said what what, what did you do and the woman said well the serpent deceived me see the, it, it's not my fault i'm basically good god it's the it, it's that that woman you gave you gave me you know if you hadn't given her to me i'd be okay you know if if i hadn't if that woman had listened to the serpent we, that's what we want to do is we want to pass the buck and we want to blame others so what happens is we come along, we have a whole society now built around psychology and sociology that has ignored God. And so we do what we do because everything's physical and material and chemical. It's just our genetic makeup. So we justify it. And, uh, it's not my fault. Those are, that's just the way I'm made. And, um, and so it's, it's all about my genes or it was my parents. You know, they, they did this, or they didn't do this, they didn't take care of me, so now I have a problem because of my awful parents, or I was abused as a child, or these things happened to me, I went through these kinds of tragedies in my life. And, well, what about the people who have bad genes and were successful and don't have your problems? What about the people who had really bad parents and were very successful? What about that? Well, because people have volition, they have personal uh, choice and responsible choice, so we t- tend to look for things that will shift the blame and so there 's a couple of different ways in which people try to handle uh, some of these uh, some of these problems, and when they don 't have God then they 've got to figure out um, how to do it, and so what happens is often uh, they take on uh victimization and so this is a section that's in your notes on page 12 through 15 the development of a victimization uh mentality and uh one of the things that happens at the beginning of this is that people lose hope they lose um uh, they lose the meaning of life and the purpose in life uh, because they, they don't see anyone in control. Things are chaotic. And so they don't understand that, um, that there's a value to life. And so they decide that life is basically meaningless. Uh, th- there's no purpose. There's no rhyme or reason to things. And so in a worst case scenario, they will become suicidal. They decide to take their, their own life. And they think that that's a good choice because of what they, uh, think about death, and what you think about death will often influence uh, what you do in life and so you have many people today that are uh, have picked up a lot of ideas from Eastern mysticism and Eastern religion, such as reincarnation. Reincarnation was repackaged for the West. if you lived in India, you live in in the far East, where you have uh, Hinduism and Buddhism that teach reincarnation, then reincarnation means that if you don't do well in this life, then you're going to come back as a gnat or you're going to come back as a lizard or you're going to come back some other unpleasant animal form. Now, the way these religions are taught and packaged for Western Europeans and Americans is that you'll just come back as a maybe a poor person, but you always come back as a human, you don't come back as a rat. You don't come back as a possum. You don't come back as a gecko. You just, uh, you're not a lower life form. Uh, so people believe that, other people believe, and I've known some people who just accept this. Well, I'm going to die and that's it. There's nothing. Well, doesn't, what about meaning in life? If you just think everything is just just the end of your existence and that's it, there's no future what, what, what are you living for? Now, some people just manufacture something to live for. But other people, they, they get overwhelmed by that. And so uh, killing themselves just sort of ends it. And they, they don't want to deal with that, that emotional, em, emotional pain. Other people say, well, we're just recycled into nature in some way. And that's good. And uh, then others believe in, in uh, reincarnation. Their basic thinking is that because because no one is in control, there's no purpose in life. And so they conclude that life is meaningless. But that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says it's appointed for men to die once, and after this, the judgment. So there's no second chance or third chance. Uh, You're not going to come back as something else. You're not going to be recycled. You're not going to be... Uh, reincarnated as somebody ni- nice. Uh, you won't have a better chance in that life. Uh, you die once, and after this, the judgment. And that judgment is harsh. Matthew 25:46, we looked at last time, that uh, there are those, it's at the sheep and goat judgments, and the goats, which are unbelievers, will go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Now, the English translation here in the New King James Version uses everlasting and eternal to translate the same word. It's the same Greek word, ionion, in both cases. So you've got to translate them both the same way because uh, they're both talking about eternal life. And so if, if the life that we get in salvation is eternal then the punishment is also eternal. It's never ending. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, you know, maybe it's a little different. And God's going to uh, annihilate them at the end. Um, I don't understand it. People are uncomfortable with it, but I know that's what the Bible teaches, and it's very clear. And you have the same Greek word, eternal, over and over again. The second thing we see is that... Um, because people can't escape the injustice of the world, they can't inju- escape their personal pain or disappointment or depression, um, that they try to, they, they, they don't want to kill themselves, but they just try to dull the pain, and so they abuse drugs and alcohol and entertainment and and food. A lot of times that's, that's at the core of, of a lot of people's sinful behavior, is that they're just trying to deal with uh, some uh, misery in, in their life. And then third, we have people who uh, don't lose hope because they find something that will give their life meaning. That's very existential. You know, okay, I'm going to help the homeless. I'm going to devote myself to a cause of social justice. I think that's part of the explanation for why we see a lot of these social justice movements is that this whole thing is attractive to people who've lost meaning and hope. Now they can give themselves to some cause and improve the lot of humanity and reform the world. And so that becomes... um, uh, 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 But all of these come out of a victim mentality, I'm a victim, everything's bad, and so you either are going to just give up and do yourself in, or you're going to try to make some kind of meaning to make it better for the for the next person. But in contrast to the victim mentality, the Bible teaches that God demands personal accountability and responsibility from, from each person. In Ezekiel eighteen twenty says the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. See, we don't bear guilt because of what our parents or our children do. They're individually responsible for the choices that they make. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Second Corinthians 5.10 says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or evil, actually. So that's the choice. The choice is to depend upon God and do what God says to do or to try to be independent of God and make life work on your own terms. The essence of victimhood is entitlement. And, you know, I think as parents you can see kids um, that that think that they're entitled to certain things, and they think that oh, I I, I deserve this. this. This is what I should get, and that can be dealt with very very, very early. Uh, so victimhood says I'm a victim, and I I just everybody's done all these things. and There's no way I can get out of the quicksand on my own. And then the other end is that I'm entitled to everything, I need to be in control, and everybody else needs to take care of me and give me everything that I want. But then it doesn't happen. So both paths end up with a sense of hopelessness. So we, that's the first divine institution. The second divine institution of marriage is attacked. We see that as a result of the curse, there's going to be a conflict in marriage because now you have two sinners... Who both think they they 're entitled to deification they want to be like God, so that 's going to be a conflict because you can 't have you know two gods running the marriage it never it never worked in mythology, uh, so God brought this this judgment on the woman, and he said i 'll multiply your sorrow and your conception." In pain you will bring forth children, that's a physical labor pains. Um, Some people say, well, I can't imagine that they wouldn't have pain when they started. Well, um, it was a different world before the fall, and things worked differently, and things would have worked out very smoothly. And so in pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire, and that's not a sexual desire, that's a desire to control. It's used that, that way in the next uh, chapter in Genesis 4, with uh, that when God says to Cain and warns him about sin and says sin wants to is like a, a crouching animal seeking to, uh, and its desire is to control you. Matthew 19:4, we uh, Jesus addressed the problem of divorce and he said at the end Moses uh, gave a writ of divorcement because of the hardness of your hearts. Because of sin, it affects marriage, and it affects families. And so there are evil alternatives to marriage in our culture, and uh, we have to teach that to our kids as they get older because they're going to hear things in schools. And they're going to see it on TV. As much as you try to protect them, they're going to get exposed to it, and especially with all of the hideous stuff that goes on with uh, LGBTQ Pride Month and pride parades and, and all of these other things. And so that they now we have alternatives that have been legalized. Marriage between a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, or adults and a child, or multiple men and one woman, multiple men, multiple women. You know, it just goes on and on. Anything but God's design for marriage, which is one man and one woman for life. The third institution is family. And now there's this conflict that occurs in the family. And the first family has a problem in Genesis four eight. Cain and Abel um, had uh, different approaches to God, and God accepted Abel's sacrifice but not Cain's. And so Cain killed his his brother. And so we see that because of man's rebellion, that God gave them over to their. Okay, you want you want to get that? Well, let me just pull back the restraints a little bit, and you'll see what you're going to get. So we go through Romans 1, 18 to 20, and Romans 1, 19 says that, that God's, what's known about God is clear from his creation. It's manifest in them internally. They know everybody. The most devout atheist knows in his heart of hearts God exists. God has shown it to them that God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. In Romans 1, 21 to 23, we see that their, their foolish hearts are darkened as a result of sin. They claim to be smart and intellectual, and they become fools, and they change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like corruptible man, birds and four-footed animals. And then it goes on in Romans 1, 24 to 25, that deals with the issue of uh, man being designed for responsibility, and instead, God gives them, up, uh, gives them up to their sin nature, to uncleanness, lust. They dishonor their bodies. They exchange the truth of God for the lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Romans 1, to 27. This is a good thing to go through with the kids taking more time than I'm taking tonight. That God, God gives them up to um, vile passion. So this is an attack on the second divine institution of marriage and all of the sexual immorality and homosexual homosexuality. And that leads to the collapse uh, of the family and the disruption of the family. And in Romans one twenty-eight uh, down to thir- 31, you have a list of a range of sins. This is not exhaustive, and it just shows what all of the problems are. So the divine institutions are like interconnected blocks and with each institution building upon the previous one. But when they're not there, societies cannot be strong without strong families. We will not have strong families without strong marriages, and we won't have strong marriages unless individuals are making good, responsible choices. So it all fits together, and the divine institutions are under attack in Western civilization like they have never been under attack before, and we're not winning anywhere. It's leading to that collapse. So in the Bible, God showed Adam the garden he had made, and then God spoke to him so he would know how to fulfill his commands. But today God shows us his creation and his word tells us how to how to live within his creation. And in conclusion, if we ignore God, we will face the consequences. Gen, uh, Galatians 6:7 do not be deceived, God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And so God had there are consequences that Adam and Eve were taken out of the garden in genesis three twenty two and twenty three and twenty four they're driven out, and an army of cherubs see cherubim is plural there's an army of cherubs that surround the garden to prevent any humans from coming back but we so we live in an abnormal world, but there is a time when evil will be cordoned off and restricted and limited to the lake of fire. And we will live in normality. We have to remember Romans 8:18. 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this world this time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So that covers lesson three. Well I mean lesson, yeah, lesson three. So we'll come back next time and start with lesson four. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these uh, consequences of sin and how sin so totally disrupted the creation that nothing was left untouched by Adam's sinful choice. And so, all that we see around us is something that we know is not normal. It's not right. There's injustice. There's there's evil. There's criminality. There's pain. There's sorrow. There's suffering. Uh, people have serious problems with their lives because of sin, but the solution starts at the cross, and the only solution comes by at the beginning by trusting in Christ as Savior, and ultimately this will all be resolved when we have the new heaven and the new earth. So Father, thank you for the way in which you revealed your Word to us that it causes us to think, think, think significantly about what has happened, why it has happened, and what you are trying to teach us in all of this. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.